Let me press record here. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Jesus tells this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, as it's commonly called. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those come from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him, send Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father, Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Let us pray. Almighty God, this passage of Scripture, this parable, is filled with substance. Many, many sermons can be preached on it. So, Lord, we come to you in humility and we ask for your spirit to give us a summary, to give us a clarity and understanding of how this passage rightly applied in the time of Christ and even now applies to us. We pray, Father, for your wisdom, your discretion, and your spirit for application. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, for those of you who have been here for the past several weeks for my sermons, you know I've been preaching a series of sermons through chapter 15 and 16 on these parables. And now we come to the last parable in this two-chapter section of Scripture. Now, before I jump into the parable, I want to point out two observations that kind of takes into consideration what comes after and what comes before this parable. And it's helpful, like two hands grabbing this parable to see the substance of it and the significance of it, why Luke places it right here. The first thing I want to point out to observe what comes after the parable is that we see an irony 
of Jesus Christ. If you look at Luke chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus says this, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for a millstone to be hung around his neck and be thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Notice that in that verse, in chapter 17, Jesus gives a very severe warning about, about, about people who cause offenses. Yet the irony is this. In this parable, Jesus Christ is especially offensive to his Jewish adversaries, as I'll, as I'll point out later. So how is it, as you can see, that Jesus Christ himself right now is being offensive in this parable, but immediately after warns about people who cause offenses? Well, the answer is this, is that the truth is, if, if the truth causes an offense, then the problem is with them and their refusal to, to accept it. In Romans chapter 9, verse 33, the Apostle Paul said that Jesus Christ was a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. On the flip side of that, if the offender is leading people away from the truth, like it is in chapter 17, then yes, let that millstone be wrapped around his neck and be cast into the sea. Well, in this passage of Scripture in Luke 16, Jesus Christ is the, rock, the righteous rock of offense as he tells this parable. And as you look at the details of this parable, it would certainly cause a lot of anger, hatred in the ears and the heart of these Pharisees that he's attacking. That's what comes after the parable. It's rather ironic. What comes before this parable is that we see the patience of Jesus Christ. As you've heard me say in many sermons before, this whole context begins with the scribes and Pharisees complaining about the tax collectors and sinners coming to Jesus. And when Jesus responds to them, he responds in parables, but the first couple of parables are not that offensive, actually. Jesus does not immediately speak offensively to the Pharisees and scribes. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, to illustrate his mission. He tells the parable of the lost son to be instructive about receiving repentant believers. And he even tells the parable of the repentant manager, which he was directing it toward the Pharisees. And the repentant manager, sometimes called the unjust steward, but it's really the repentant manager, it is, it is there to encourage the Pharisees to change. Luke wants you to see and to observe that Jesus Christ is gradually working up to this parable right here that is so offensive. Jesus Christ is being patient. Did the Pharisees change? Luke wants you to know they did not. They got worse. Instead, instead of complaining about this crowd coming to Jesus, it says in verse 14 of chapter 15, the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they mocked Jesus. They move, they, they get worse. They move from complaining about the crowd to actually mocking Jesus. And I mentioned last week that word mocking actually means um, they lifted their nose at Jesus. In other words, they were looking down on him. They were being the snobs of their day. That's how they reacted to the nice parables of Jesus Christ, the instructive parables. 
Now, Jesus Christ is going to tell a parable where the Jew in the parable receives no mercy. Now, Jesus Christ has been patient. He has been generous. Now, he's going to tell a parable that hits him right in the heart. And as we approach this parable, remember the context. Because what began the whole context? Table fellowship. Jesus Christ is having table fellowship with the tax collectors and the sinners who are repentant. This parable begins with table fellowship of the Jewish rich man. And you're going to see the contrast between Jesus' table and the Jewish table. Jesus' table includes the repentant tax collectors and repentant sinners. The Jewish table excludes these people. The Jewish table excludes even the Lazaruses of the world. Let's look at verse 19 to 21 about the Jewish table. There was a certain rich man. He's clothed in purple, fine linen. He lived in luxury every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate. By the way, it's passive. They had to take him and lay him there. He couldn't actively walk there. He just laid there by other people at the gate of this rich man. And he desired to be fed simply with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. A couple of comments about this Jewish table. How, how do we know it's Jewish? He's rich. Well, later in the parable, when the man is in Hades, <clears throat> or hell, <clears throat> he looks up at Abraham and he calls him father. This is where it's so offensive to Jesus' hearers. And Abraham, when he looks down there into hell and says, he calls him son. This is showing you it's Jewish. Though it's rich, it's a Jewish table. Now, when the Bible refers to this man as being rich, you need to understand what the Bible is winking at and symbolizing. All these riches that this man have is a symbol of God's covenant blessings. Covenant blessings. The Bible is not criticizing his capitalism or his, you know, his intelligence to earn money or anything like that. What the Bible is criticizing is how this man has used the wealth of God's kingdom against God's people and for the brutality of God's people. This is very similar to how the Bible talks about wealth and riches in the Old Testament, especially in Ezekiel chapter 16. Listen to this. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 12, God is describing the blessings of the covenant that came upon old Israel. And in 16, chapter 16, it's a woman. And God says this about Israel being a woman. I put a jewel on your nose, earrings on your ears, a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was fine linen and embroidered with cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour and honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame, he's talking to Israel here, your fame went out through all the nations because of your beauty. It was, it, for it was perfect with splendor, which I bestowed upon you, O Lord, or says the Lord God. I'll end, I'll end there because it's a long chapter about how God gave so much to Israel beautified her, made her rich and splendorous with all the covenant blessings. And yet what did she do? She went out and 
poured herself out to other nations and was an unfaithful bride. In this parable, God is illustrating Israel. Jesus is illustrating Israel the same way with this rich man. In Ezekiel, it was a rich woman. In this passage, it's a rich man. And notice a similar language as well. In Ezekiel chapter 16, Israel's filled with gold and silver, symbolizing all the great things she has from God. Here, this rich man is very rich. He lives in luxury every day. Also, the, the woman in Ezekiel chapter 16 is clothed in fine linen. Now, all of you are Exodus scholars, because I've taught the book of Exodus. You remember in Exodus, what does the high priest wear? He wears fine linen into the Holy of Holies. Israel has fine linen, Ezekiel chapter 16. The rich man here has fine linen in this parable. Also, the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he wore purple. He wore purple. That was a color he wore over his fine linen. This rich man right here has purple as a clothing. What Jesus is indicating here, the description of this rich man, is the blessings and the glory and the graces that God has given Israel. So, this man here is like a type or a, the whole of, of Israel bottlenecked into this one little parable right there. So what did Israel do wrong? What did this rich man here do wrong in this parable? Well, the Jewish table, like this rich man is symbolizing, the Jewish table loved the gifts more than the giver. This rich man loved all the gifts and the gold and everything, but forgot the God who gave it to him. The Jewish people in Jesus' day, they used their, their position and their blessings not to bless other people below them, but to exclude them and to trample them. They weren't humbled. The, the Jewish people were not humbled by God's doctrine of election. They walked around believing and thinking and knowing that they're the elect of God. And therefore, they can turn up their nose to all those under them. That's how they perverted the doctrine of election into elitism. So now they can throw a bunch of crumbs at the Lazaruses of the world. That's the, that's the hard-heartedness that Jesus Christ is attacking in these Jewish people and that Jesus Christ is symbolizing with this rich man. What is Jesus Christ symbolizing with Mr. Lazarus? The answer is, Lazarus symbolizes his followers, the followers of Jesus Christ. Now, as Jesus Christ does with the description of the rich man, he alludes to different parts of the Bible. Even with, with Lazarus, Jesus is going to allude to different parts of the Bible in order to explain the faith and the salvation that Lazarus has. Let me give you a few echoes of Scripture of how Jesus is alluding to outsiders in the Bible who had the faith of Lazarus or the faith of Abraham. First of all is this. The Hebrew name for Lazarus is Eliezer. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 2, Eliezer was part of Abraham's adopted household. Eliezer would have inherited all the blessings of the covenant if 
Isaac would not have been born. So, Eliezer in the Old Testament was excluded. Eliezer or Lazarus, right now, he's being excluded in this parable, but of course he goes to heaven, not the Jewish rich man. Secondly, Lazarus is full of sores in this parable. Who does this make you think of? Come on, you, know, you got it. Job. Job in the Old Testament had the faith of Abraham. He had a true faith in the living God. But Job was not a Jew. Job was a descendant of Esau. Job had sores and boils all over his body. Yet he was righteous and he had the faith of Abraham. And he goes to heaven just like Lazarus does in this parable. And of course, the Jews, how do they treat the people who are under them, so to speak, or treat the people who are outside of their gates? They treated them just like dogs. Throw some crumbs at a dog. Lazarus is being identified with a dog here because not only does he eat the crumbs, but the dog come and lick his own sores. Jesus is using this descriptive language of Lazarus to communicate the faith that goes all the way back to, to Job, to his people surrounding him who are sick, who are downtrodden, who are being abused by the Jewish uh, rulers of the day. And in this parable, Jesus is craftily saying, basically, in this life, that son of Abraham was not a true son of Abraham. The real son of Abraham was Lazarus, this Eliezer. And he goes up into Abraham's embrace, Abraham's bosom up into heaven. And the one you thought was a true son of Abraham, he goes to hell, tormented forever and ever. Now, as a side note, by the way, the Hades here, it's not the final ending of hell. It's, it's the holding pattern where hell is for now, after the final judgment, that portion of Hades is dumped into the lake of fire. Both are tormented. But it gets worse because after the resurrection, he goes to the lake of fire with a body, not just his soul. So it's like hell leading to hell or Hades leading to the ultimate hell. Now, you will see this. This is interesting as well. During the days of Jesus's ministry, this is pretty much all the Jewish people did concerning Jesus's followers was one thing. They simply excluded the Lazaruses of the world. Put them outside the gate, throw a bunch of crumbs at him, look down your nose. That's what they did during the three years of Jesus' ministry. But 40 years later, it got worse. They would not simply exclude the Lazaruses of the world. Within 40 years, they would execute the Lazaruses of the world and get drunk on their blood. This is exactly what John refers to in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 4. And in that language, in that chapter, John is going to borrow from the book of Ezekiel. And John is going to use even the same language from this parable. And he's going to describe the city of Jerusalem like a woman. And the city of Jerusalem, he says, is a woman who was arrayed in purple and scarlet. 
and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. John calls this woman the whore of Babylon, but it's a reference to the city of Jerusalem. And John says she was drunk on the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So you see the, I guess you can call it progression, but it's digression, where in Jesus' ministry, the Jewish people act like this rich man of excluding Lazarus, throwing a bunch of crumbs at him, looking down upon him, all this stuff. But when they, after they go through 40 years of exclusion, they actually come to a point of execution, of killing Lazarus, of not just looking down upon him, because Lazarus represents the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostles, the disciples, and they are going to go through the persecution there in their day. Also, you'll notice this, how the language that John uses is similar to the language that Jesus uses about the rich man. The whore of Babylon, the, the great Jerusalem harlot there in Revelation 17, she's rich, just like this rich man here is rich. She also wears purple, just like this man here wears purple in, in the parable. Well, here's part of the good news. It's a lot of bad news, isn't it? Part of the good news is this, what Jesus mentions in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. That after the apostles go through that great tribulation of suffering and hardship and being executed by the wickedness of Jerusalem, after the apostles go through that great tribulation, Jesus said that the world would never experience such sufferings again. All the tribulations that come after the time of the apostles are lesser tribulations. Why is that? Why do things get better after the tribulations of the apostles? Why are all the sufferings of World War II and the centuries in our past, past 2,000 years lesser than the apostles? The answer is this. The ascension of Christ made things better. The ascension of Christ made things better for the dead. And the ascension of Christ made things better for the living. Let me explain this. You see in this parable, where where does Lazarus go? Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. That's Old Testament language for where the righteous went in their dead phase, where the dead righteous went into Abraham's bosom. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, John calls this place under the altar. That's tabernacle terminology for a lower part of the dead zone or the heavenly dead zone. This is why Samuel, whenever he's called up from the grave in the Old Testament, he comes up from the ground. It's like the dead saints are at Abraham's bosom, but they're not in the highest part of heaven yet. Jesus changed that for the dead in Christ. Now, Jesus Christ ascended to the highest throne room of heaven. He went beyond the lower altar. He went beyond the crystal sea. And he went all the way to the throne room. And in Revelation, it says how the saints went all the way up there to join him. So that now when you die in the Lord, you don't go to Abraham's bosom. You go to Christ's bosom. You go to the presence of Christ and his embrace. 
That's where Jesus Christ takes all the souls of the saints from the Old Testament and brings them up and positions them on thrones so that the dead are even placed in a higher precinct of heaven after the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ makes things better in heaven for the dead in Christ. He also makes things better on earth for those who are alive in Christ. The reason why is because Jesus Christ, as He went through death and resurrection, He will continually bring civilizations, kingdoms, nations, and peoples through different phases of types of deaths and resurrections. He will continue to till the soil of humanity more and more and bring light and glory continually, continually until He finally comes again. The reason why we know this is true is because Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, that Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Coming under the feet of Christ can be either by conversion or conquest. But that's why Jesus Christ changed things or how he changed things. Whenever he ascended, things changed for the dead in Christ and changed things for the living. So that after the great tribulation of the apostles, it won't be that bad again. Things will grow and grow and the kingdom of God will prosper. Now, lastly, let me conclude with one more observation about this parable, about how Jesus Christ makes things better even for the living. And it's another irony in this passage of Scripture, an irony about the ministry of Jesus. Notice that the rich man asked Father Abraham, saying, Lazarus, or he asked Father Abraham, please send Lazarus from the dead to warm my five brothers. Now remember, this rich man represents Israel. Well, guess who had five brothers? At this time in history, in the t- during the time period of Jesus' ministry, it was Caiaphas, the high priest, in Jerusalem had five brothers. Brothers, We know this from historical records. The rich man here is asking for Lazarus to come up from the dead. So the five brothers will not come down, possibly alluding to Caiaphas' five brothers. Or, you know, to the nation of Israel. Abraham says they're not going to believe even if he raises from the dead, if someone raises from the dead. Now here's what's ironic. That was true. There was a man named Lazarus who was raised from the dead. And they still tried to kill him. When Jesus Christ resurrected Lazarus from the dead, you can see it and interpret that that resurrection from the dead as a type of fulfillment here of what this Jewish man is asking. And that didn't work. The resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11 didn't work. It didn't give faith to the Jewish nation. They killed Christ Jesus. They still rejected him. But there was a resurrection that did work. It was the resurrection of Christ. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came after the resurrection of Christ and 3,000 Jews came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they believed in him. I really believe that whenever Jesus tells this parable and he's put it together, it's quite possible 
that in this parable, it's not talking about Jesus' resurrection that will not cause any belief or faith. It's actually talking about the Lazarus resurrection because his name's Lazarus. And what, this, what he is asking for in this parable, it does come to pass in the ministry of Jesus with a man named Lazarus coming from the dead, but it's impotent. It doesn't work. It doesn't create faith. But Jesus' resurrection changes things because it has the power of the Holy Spirit. It does produce converts in Judaism. And those people who are converted, those Jewish converts, they're the ones who will go through that great tribulation in the days of the apostles. They will go through that martyrdom. And their souls will not go to Abraham's bosom, but go to Christ's bosom. They will sit in thrones with Jesus Christ on the highest throne in heaven and heaven in the heaven of heavens. So what you have to understand to grab, I think, the fullness of this parable is that Jesus Christ changes things in heaven on earth and on earth. And he progresses his kingdom from glory to glory. So that as you can see the comparisons and the contrast, things change with the resurrection and ascension of Christ so that it gets so much better in the end. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks, Lord, that Jesus Christ has gripped us in his grace so that we have the throne room and the presence of Christ to look forward to when we die in the faith. We give you thanks, Lord, that you've gripped us with your grace so that not even death can take us away from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, you empower your church to proclaim the truth of the gospel and rest upon your word. In your name we pray. Amen.